Welcome to See, Hear, Speak podcast, episode 22. This is a special episode in which guest host Kelly Farquharson asked me questions to celebrate the one-year anniversary of the podcast. And I now have even more empathy of my wonderfully brave guests because being in the hot seat as a guest is a lot more nerve-wracking than asking the questions. You may recognize Kelly's name because she's been a guest on a few See, Hear, Speak podcast episodes, so check those out to hear more about her amazing work. And as always, thank you for listening. And don't forget to check out www.seehearspeakpodcast.com to sign up for email alerts for new episodes and content, read a transcript of this podcast, access articles and resources that we discussed, and find more information about our guests. Speaking of those resources, I'm still working on getting many of them posted to the website, so thank you for your kind patience and stay tuned. And don't forget, if you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and leave a positive rating in Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening. Welcome to a special episode of See, Hear, Speak podcast. My name's Kelly Farquharson, and I am your guest host this week. I'm really excited to be turning the tables onto our favorite podcast host, Dr. Tiffany Hogan. So welcome, Tiffany. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I'm going to have you start this podcast episode by introducing yourself the way that you typically have your listeners introduce themselves. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay. Well, I'm Tiffany Hogan, and I'm definitely getting the feeling of how my guests might feel because I'm quite nervous having the tables turned. Um, my name is Tiffany Hogan. As I said, I'm a professor at MGH Institute of Health Professions, and I'm the director of the Speech and Language Literacy Lab here. And I study the relationship between oral and written language with a focus on those who struggle in those areas. So children who have speech sound disorders, dyslexia, or developmental language uh, disorder. Fantastic. And so this is a special episode, as your listeners may be aware, you have recently celebrated the one-year anniversary of See, Hear, Speak podcast. And so this particular episode is to highlight some of the research that you've done, but we've also um, collected and solicited some questions from current and former students and postdocs, as well as listeners who have signed up to receive the email alerts for your podcast. And so um, I'm going to start by, you know, you've introduced yourself, and I think most people who listen have heard you talk a little bit about your research and a little bit about um, maybe why you started the podcast and what has led to your interest in having these conversations about the developing child. But I'm hoping that you can really spend some time, and I know this is awkward for you, um, <laughs> but actually really spend some time talking about your research. So you are a full professor. Um, you've had your PhD for about 14 years, you've been doing this research and training students and reaching out to communities for quite some time now, um, in, first in Arizona, then in Nebraska, now in Boston, Massachusetts, and your career has, is just one that we all kind of aspire to be. So I'm hoping that you can spend some time talking a little bit about your research. So maybe where you your initial interest started and then maybe where you think now your, your current focus is. Well, thank you. Uh, this is a really um, cool opportunity to talk about that. So thank you. Uh, so when I, I was a practicing clinician for uh, three years or so before I started the PhD. And one thing that struck me as a, a practicing clinician is that we often, you know, in the programs for getting your degree in speech language pathology, you take courses that really silo uh, areas that children might have difficulty. So you take a course in speech sound disorder, you take a course in language disorders. If you're lucky, you took a course in literacy assessment and, and uh, intervention, which I didn't have a course like that, but um, you know, many places do now. And I think you know these courses in silos teach you and give, give you an opportunity to get a breadth and depth of these disorders. But when I became a practicing clinician, what struck me the most is that these disorders often co-occur in children. So you have one child sitting in front of you who has all of these issues, and then you also have the developmental nature of it. So you have a child who you see in preschool, 
uh, and maybe you work on speech sound and some language and then they seem to be doing better and then you get a call back that they're struggling with literacy. So having that developmental picture as a clinician and then also seeing the child as a whole and thinking about what they bring to the table and their abilities and what the environment does and all of those interactions got me interested to do some more research and learn more because I was just hitting a wall trying to answer some of the clinical questions I had. So then I started my PhD with uh, Hugh Katz. He happened to be down the road. I was in Kansas City, Missouri. He was at the University of Kansas. And uh, I started you know, very interested in these phonological deficits that we see in children with dyslexia. So uh, I was intrigued by the fact that you could have children with speech sound disorder, which presumably have this difficulty producing individual speech sounds and patterns of speech sounds because they have a phonological deficit. And then you have children with dyslexia have this phonological deficit that go on to have word reading problems. But children with dyslexia didn't always have speech sound disorders and children with speech sound disorders didn't always have dyslexia. So I wanted to think more deeply about the underlying mechanisms associated with phonological deficits. And that's what I did for my dissertation work and also my initial uh, RO3 NIH grant. I looked at um, this idea of lexical restructuring, so vocabulary words as they enter the lexicon force you to, to uh, at an unconscious level, more deeply specify your phonological representation. So that brought in this idea of vocabulary stimulation, how you learn words and how that word learning and uh, vocabulary stimulation and knowledge could impact phonological deficits. And then uh, in that work, I also um, thought more deeply about speech sound disorders and working with children who have speech sound disorders and how their speech perception might give us insight into their future uh, treatment response and also their literacy impairments. And that's where I had the uh, great opportunity to work with you uh, on speech sound disorder and also work with Katie Cabbage. And you two are still just pushing that agenda, which is awesome. Um, and then I, I also, very early on in my discussions with uh, Hugh, my mentor, we talked a lot about protective mechanisms. So why some children go on, have you know risk for dyslexia and go on to not have dyslexia and some go on to have severe dyslexia. So, and it wasn't always predicted by their phonological deficit as you thought it might be. So there are many children, uh, I was part of this longitudinal study where we found that there are many children who had phonological deficits but didn't go on to have dyslexia. So that's the flip side uh, of this is the protective mechanisms that might be involved in resilience uh, and risk and resilience and those kinds of things. Uh, and mechanism is, a, is something that really drives a lot of the work I do. So trying to dig deeper and understand individual differences in the heterogeneity of the kids I saw clinically. And one of those uh, mechanisms is uh, working memory. So I've also studied working memory differences in children with dyslexia, developmental language disorder, and both of those co-occurring deficits. And that's work with Shelley Gray and Mary Alt. And we've looked, we've created a working memory battery that's child-friendly. And we've had some really interesting results uh, looking at how children with dyslexia have quite different working memory profiles. I mean, we predicted that all the children we saw with dyslexia would have at least a core deficit in phonology. Uh, and we don't find that. I mean, they have widely different profiles of working memory, which I think explains a lot of the heterogeneity we see clinically, but it also pushes the work forward to try to think about you know, should we be thinking more about working memory profiles as opposed to just the impairment of dyslexia? What can, having dyslexia, you know, that's a word reading deficit. What can we get beyond that diagnosis by looking at working memory and how could that inform our clinical practice and improving our interventions for children, especially those who are treatment resistors? Um, and I've also looked at, um, in other work, looking at language intervention and thinking about the processes, again, that predict de development over time. Development's also been another theme in my work. I, I've had the good fortune of working on several longitudinal studies, which by the way, are really hard to do, as Kelly will attest to, as she was a doctoral student when I was running one of them, but um, they take a lot of effort to keep the kids in the study and to you know, uh, make some tough decisions about how to get them seen. But you know, getting that data is just so critical for us to help to understand how changes occur over time. And in particular prediction, I think that's really important. So in the Language and Reading Research Consortium study called LARC, 
uh, we looked at children as they progressed from pre-K to grade three and tested them every year. And then uh, Shelly Gray, Kate Kane, and Mindy Bridges are following those ki kids now. They're in eighth grade. I know that because my own child was pre-K when we started that study and now he's in eighth grade. So I always, I always know how old those kids are in the large yeah. study. <laughs> yes. And uh, so yeah, right. And so we've had a lot of really interesting results from that study, looking at the language basis of um, reading comprehension over time. And one of the key findings is, uh, you know, actually harkens back to some of the work I did with Hugh on a different longitudinal study where we find that early on word reading really predicts a child's ability to comprehend what they read, probably because the text is pretty easy. And if they can actually decode the words, they can understand it. And then later on, it's really more about language comprehension differences that predict reading comprehension abilities. And uh, we've hypothesized it's not only because the text becomes harder, but you also can get to a certain point of word reading ability that that is at a threshold. So you can you can learn it, you can read enough of the words to comprehend. So it's less about the word reading differences and more about the language comprehension differences. And this has a lot of clinical implications for thinking about who will have problems in the future and focusing on both word reading and language comprehension. And then recently I've been working on a new project uh, at looking at orthography and word learning and how to predict children with developmental language disorder who will go on to have dyslexia and who won't. But I'll talk about that later in the podcast because I know you're going to ask me. I'm going to reserve that for your question. You're going to ask me about my exciting new project because uh, that's one of them. So uh, again, thank you for the opportunity to talk about this a bit and uh, think about the work and where it's gone from the beginning of my career till, till now. Well, that's fascinating, and I, I'm sure that your listeners are going to be really excited to hear a little bit more of those details about the projects that you've been involved in. And I'll just take the opportunity to make sure that your listeners also know that uh, that body of work is published across, is it 80 different publications now, um, peer-reviewed publications. This work is funded by millions and millions of dollars from uh, a variety of funders, so um, NIH, the National Institutes of Health, IES, the Institute of Education Sciences, and so this is this is work that is clinically relevant, that is um, rigorous from a research and methodological standpoint, but is also really impressive the way that you have disseminated this work um, through you know so many publications, so many collaborations, and and really is exciting to see that. Uh, uh, a practicing speech language pathologist who has kind of a burning desire to answer questions in a deeper way, in a different way, um, can really go on to have the kind of career that you've had so far. Well, now you're making me blush, so I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, so then along those lines, um, as I mentioned, you've gotten a lot of great questions here from um, a lot of my friends, too, our, our um, academic family, so previous students and postdocs, and a lot of the questions did kind of um, – follow similar themes. And so um, instead of going through each one at a time, um, we, we kind of have collapsed them across some of the more common uh, questions that people had. And so um, thinking about those publications and all of the um, accomplishments that you have had so far in your career, um, one of the questions is, what is one of the top three things you're most proud of having been a part of professionally? Mm -hmm. Well, this is a really hard question. And so instead of saying one, I'm just going to say the top three. Uh, so I have <laughs> it's a little bit of leeway. Uh, yeah. one, of the, one of the things I'm most proud of happened last year when I was uh, asked to lead the first ever ASHA journal special issue focus on dyslexia. It was such an honor to do this, uh, even though, you know, the you know, we've had a statement, position statement from ASHA for many, many years now, almost two decades, showing that we have a strong role as speech pathologists in literacy, uh, being the first one to lead a special issue on dyslexia, a, a population of children and adults that I adore was just such an honor. And so I loved doing that. Um, so that's one of the first ones. And the second one I thought about really... Um, is just my students. It has been such an honor and I'm just so proud of each and every one of them. And I've just enjoyed uh, you know, working with them, training them, but they train me as well. It's really bi-directional. And to see how you and these students have uh, excelled in the academy and found your individual path has been just a, a, a real gift. Um, 
and how you've held on to your individual passions and taken what you learned about being a scientist and a clinician and moving forward. And, you know, for the ASHA fellow recently, I know, Kelly, you were a big part of this, is that you got all of them together. And that's something I'm not very good at. You asked about how many papers. I'm not really good at, at keeping track of some of those products, although I do have the CD and I try to keep it up to date. But I had never really stopped to count the students and postdocs that I had worked with. And it was 16 and I was shocked. So, um, you know, just to see them together and to um, think about where you've been has just been such a, a blessing. And then uh, the last thing I'll mention is this podcast. I, I really took a chance on it. It was very terrifying. And um, I had to, I guess, walk the walk. And I've always preached that you need to do uncomfortable things. And this was super uncomfortable. So uh, I took that chance and it's turned out to be really amazing. And I, I've loved it. So those are those are the three things I thought about, uh, although I've just, you know, in thinking about them, there's many more I could have mentioned. Oh, and indeed, there's, I'm sure there's tons you could have mentioned, but I'm really <laughs> excited that, that you were able to think about those things. And um, it has been really special to um, see this podcast develop and, and to listen to all the episodes and to hear you talk to some people that, that I've maybe had the chance to know personally, but also a lot of people I got to meet through your connections with them. And so that's been a really, um, it's been a really fun way to get to know people. And I'm sure you've, you've experienced the same thing. So um, I'm excited that you um, asked me to, to guest host this this week as well. Um, I think in addition you mentioned the um, special issue on dyslexia and so you do typically also link resources to your listeners and so that will be something that will be linked for this episode for um, any listeners who maybe haven't had the chance to look through that yet. Um, we'll make sure that that's something they have access to. Okay, so in moving forward, um, I love this question. I think this is one that you'll really have a fun time with, and I think your listeners will enjoy. Um, so um, if you had an audience of every speech-language pathologist in the world, what would you want them to understand about reading and language? Okay, so for this one, <laughs> I'm going to answer two parts. So okay. first, I'm going to focus on more of a content that I would love everyone to understand, and then I'm gonna focus on a concept. So the content is that I would love for everyone to understand that there's these two big primary components involved in reading comprehension. There's a lot more than that, but there's this model that has the most support for models of reading called the simple view of reading, and it, it shows that children have to use their ability to read words and turn those written words into something spoken. And when I say spoken, it's either out loud or in their head. And then they have to, uh, comprehend or understand that spoken language, whether it's read out loud or in their head. So these are the two primary um, components. And there's been such great progress in thinking about the word reading component. So with movements like decoding dyslexia, a focus on really strong classroom-based word reading instruction, uh, that's been fantastic. And I love to see that movement towards uh, improving word reading instruction. I would love to see that same type of movement for language comprehension. So a focus on it early and, um, you know, screening for children who have language comprehension problems and word reading problems. So those who have word reading problems, you know, if they have uh, extreme difficulties, then they are going to have dyslexia. So that would be a diagnosis. And if you have, uh, you know, difficulties in language comprehension, that's really a characteristic of a child with developmental language disorder. This overlaps about 50%. So it's 50% of the children on average across studies who have dyslexia also have DLD or developmental language disorder and the vice versa, 50% of DLD. Uh, children with DLD have dyslexia. So it does co-occur, but it also means it's not a full overlap. So there are some children who only have problems in the language comprehension piece. They can read words and vice versa. Those who have problems with word reading, but can comprehend if the text is read out loud to them. So that's something that I wish that everyone could know because then it would create um, procedures and policies and practices in which both of those are screened early, both are addressed early and across the continuum. And then I think our job is to try to think more deeply about how do we stimulate each of those in the best way? How do we individualize our treatment for each of these areas? How do we determine how much time to spend on each of them for all children and for children who are struggling? Uh, so those are some of the really outstanding questions we need to address. 
the other um, is a concept, as I mentioned. So that was more of the content. The concept I wish everyone understood more, and I didn't really understand it as a clinician myself until I became a, a researcher, is this idea of the normal distribution, that everything is really on a continuum. So when we talk about a diagnosis of something, it's really where we've decided that's the low end of a normal distribution. So, you know, when I'm doing these longitudinal large-scale studies, people will say, you know, how many children in your sample have dyslexia, for instance? And that is a question that varies depending on where I decide to mark, okay, this is the place in which if you score below a certain point, you have dyslexia. So a good example is, you know, if you're giving the test of word reading efficiency, it's a common test administered. It's a timed word reading and non-word reading it test. And if someone says to me, you know, how many children in your sample have dyslexia? If I decide, because it's a normal distribution, there's just a distribution of scores. If I decide, well, the 10th percentile, that means that the children in the sample who had the 10th percentile or below have dyslexia. There is a child, several, that have 11th percentile, 12th percentile, 13, 14, 15, because it's on that continuum. So if I say 10th percentile, if, the, if it's normally distributed and we have a large enough population of children, it's about 10%. If I decide, well, 16th percentiles where I'm cutting, you know, where I'm cutting the distribution, that means they're going to be 16% of the children who have dyslexia. So this question of prevalence is a tricky one because it really has to do with arbitrary cut points and the same for language. So I, I think understanding this, um, this concept that there's a normal distribution of skills along a continuum on all types of skills also helps me to think more about individual differences. So I've been starting to use this um, visual of a mixer, like a mixing board uh, when, you know, I think they still have them, but I think from my childhood where you would like turn up the bass and the treble and all these different things. Mm -hmm. And um, so if you think about a mixing board with levers that go up and down, you can think about those as individual abilities of a person, a child, and you can think about their individual differences in word reading, um, language comprehension, uh, executive functioning, uh, ADHD, um, you know, characteristics, uh, lots of things, speech sound production, and you could think about where they are on that scale. And where they are uh, on all those levers is going to create basically a fingerprint of their cognitive linguistic profile, and that's going to make that child unique. So even, you know, if I say, a you know, two children have dyslexia, it's really their severity of dyslexia and their profiles in other areas that determine how you might best treat them and determine their individual profile. So I've been thinking a lot about those individual differences and this idea of the normal curve. And that really has helped me to think uh, uh, about how science and practice interface when I think about this normal distribution. Wow, that's fascinating. And I'm I'm certain that all of your listeners are just going to be excited to hear about that because I think it really is important that we're thinking about um, the science behind our decisions, but then also this idea of individual differences is so important. And as you know, a lot of my recent work has been trying to understand this idea of eligibility criteria, particularly in schools. And so everything that you're saying is just really resonating with a lot of things that I've been thinking about too, because I think we do ultimately need to have a, a way for clinicians to carry the science forward and that's kind of where we tend to get tripped up as a field because there isn't a great communication between all the information that you're talking about with this overlap and prevalence and cut points and I love the idea your mixer board example and the idea of it being a fingerprint I think is is just so profound because I think that really helps us understand how unique each of these kids are it's really easy it's really um, I think in some ways we think of it as convenient to want to try and put labels, put arbitrary cut points as a hard and fast rule and to put, you know, kids in boxes um, so that we can better understand them. But that's really ultimately not exactly how it works. And so I think this is a nice way of, of thinking about it. And hopefully our science will continue to evolve so we can support kids and clinicians alike. I think this will really make, I think this concept will become more prevalent and understood as we move forward with risk models. So now having, you know, I think it's 42 states last time I checked, have laws for um, dyslexia. Some of them, most of them include screening for dyslexia, but screening is just a risk 
percentage, right? So it's just the percentage of risk that you have. So if you score low um, on a you know a battery of assessments that determine risk for dyslexia, you you know you should get basically a percentage, like your eighty percent chance of having dyslexia, seventy percent, fifty percent. But that's still going to require. Um, practitioners, clinicians, educators, administrators to decide at what percent risk do I intervene and how do I make those decisions? It's still going to be a continuous distribution that we have to consider. It's not yes risk, no risk. It's really on a continuum. And I think understanding that is going to help us make better decisions about assessment and intervention. Absolutely. And I think one thing that you've done really well as a researcher, among other things, is establish some of those relationships in your community. And I know how difficult that can be uh, to create those relationships to recruit um, children or adults or participants for your studies um, and to really kind of get your voice out there. So I can envision that being maybe one of the obstacles you've faced in your research career. Um, but my next question really does have to do with the obstacles in general. So. Um, being a scientist is difficult, being in the academy is difficult, being a clinician is difficult, but I'm gonna ask you to reflect on maybe the biggest obstacle that you've experienced in your research career so far and how did you ever overcome that? So the biggest obstacle is myself ultimately <laughs> because it's that I wanna do too much. I'm very impatient and I wanna make progress now. I want the answer to research questions. I wanna believe the work I'm doing will help a child somewhere someday. I'd like it to ha happen now. So I'm very impatient. Uh, the way I've really got around this as a scientist is to realize that it just takes time. It takes time and we're I always say we're moving mountains. It just takes time. But I felt this way as a clinician too. I just, I wanted to see the progress right away. But I realized with experience that with time you do see that progress. Um, and so, as a scientist, uh, one way I've tried to get around this impatience is to work on really good teams, delegate, trust your collaborators, trust the process. I don't micromanage. Uh, when I work on a great team, you know, you've multiplied the times, uh, the things that you're doing and the impact you have because a team, you know, it's, it's really the whole is greater than some of the parts. So you can make a bigger impact, move the science forward as a team. And I love that process. Um, and selfishly, I just really like working with other scientists, too, and clinicians and school administrators. So that team uh, process is quite fantastic. Um, I'm, at, you know, I'm just really constantly asking myself if I'm the only one that can do a task I'm doing. If the answer is yes, I forge on and go for it. But if the answer is no, someone else could be doing this, then I give someone else the opportunity to do it and I ask for help. Um, so I think that that's, uh, you know, what I've tried to understand is that, uh, you know, Time is the biggest obstacle, but with patience and continued effort, I've seen the work pay off. It just takes time. Yeah. So you're basically saying I come by it naturally. I feel that, <laughs> yes, that's right. I feel that impatience myself quite a bit. It's especially I think it's one of those things too where the more the more you know, the more you know that you don't know. Yes. Oh my gosh. <laughs> that yes. makes sense. And so you just once you start to learn more about all of these cognitive processes and then the extent to which that it can be implemented in different clinical settings and different questions that you get from your listeners, your students and clinicians in the field, I think open up the floodgates in ways of like, oh, we can maybe work on that or let's see if we can put a study together and examine that. And that just, um, it creates a lot of irons in the fire, but you seem to manage it very well. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's right. tricky. Easy for me to say. So so then if that if that's the case, that so you do this very well and you're an excellent researcher, but if you if you could do something else with your career, what would you want to be if you weren't a researcher? I would be a preschool teacher. I love that age and I just would love the opportunity to really get in there and teach the early reading skills and the comprehension skills seamlessly together. And those kids just say the cutest things. So my middle child is in pre-kindergarten and every time I go into his room I just feel like oh I'm home I just I love that group I think that what teachers do managing a whole entire classroom trying to personalize instruction trying to manage so many things I'm just in awe as a clinician I would manage some small groups but I didn't manage a classroom but I've had the opportunity as a researcher to work with so many teachers and even uh, you know be a part of a large team that developed a classroom intervention and I just still think that uh, what teachers do on a daily basis in the classroom is just so amazing. And I think that would be really stimulating and, and just super fun. I would love it. 
Absolutely. And I think that would like talk about opening up more uh, cans of worms with respect to questions and new new directions for your research. I think every time I hear kids, you know, say something that's really cute or funny or interesting, it does make me think, oh, I wonder where did they learn the vocabulary word or yeah. why are they saying it that that particular way? Um, so I think that really does like kind of fuel that um, your passion there in, in both directions. And so to that end, do you ever miss clinical practice? You've talked a lot about being a clinician. Do you miss it? Well, I say that I don't miss clinical practice because I, it was too much to manage for me when I started as a doc in a doctoral program. I did some private practice, but I really just want to throw my full self into uh, the doctoral study. So I let go of those private uh, clients and I've really been working wholly in research for so long now. Uh, and I think I just get, I think because my work involves clinical problems, I feel that I am not super far away from clinical practice in the sense that I get to talk to clinicians, I get to go into schools, and I feel like I have a sense of what's happening. But <laughs> something interesting happened uh, earlier this year where I went into a school and I was, you know, one of one of our assessors, um, I think it wasn't well, or there was just a scheduling issue. It was like, hey, Dr. Hogan, can you do this? Yes, I would love to. And I'd been wanting to administer this dynamic decoding screener um, by Doug Peterson and Trina Spencer for a long time because I've read about the research and, and one of their articles was in the special issue. So I said, yeah, I want to do this. So I went in for two whole days and I tested kindergartners, mostly five-year-olds, and it took about 10 minutes per kid. And oh my goodness, it was so fun. It was like riding a bicycle. Like I just remembered all my old stupid jokes and they laughed and it, it was pure joy. And so at the end of it, I told my project manager, I'm not going back to the lab. I'm just going to hang out here. <laughs> this is where I miss it so much. So I think I might miss it more than I admit, um, yeah. but it's more of a time management issue. I just, I can't do it all. And so I, I get to talk to clinicians and, and get to do these uh, partnerships with schools clinicians and think about implementation science. So how what I'm doing uh, fits into clinical practice and how it happens in the moment as I'm doing the studies. Uh, most of the studies involve going into schools and working in that situation and thinking with teachers, administrators, educators, SLPs, uh, special educators, like how is this working now? How's it not? What are the barriers facilitators? So I'm really um, lucky to get to do that type of work. I love that type of work because it keeps that integration of research and clinical practice for me. That's great. And I think it's also really interesting to hear the um, the extent to which your your um, kind of this evolution of your access to working directly with kids and how that's changed over time and how how it's important to view the work that you do from from whatever that position is. So you know if you're teaching clinicians, then you're reaching a broader group of of yes. children who may have some of these speech and language disorders. If you're disseminating research, then hopefully you're reaching you know clinicians nationwide or maybe even world. Worldwide, and then influencing the children on their caseload. So I think it's a really important viewpoint to maintain um, for researchers. But I think that's so great, Kelly. I will say that my priority is always the children. That's my first mm -hmm. priority. So every decision I make, you know, what I do as a researcher, um, as an instructor, I'm constantly thinking about the children, how this would hopefully impact them in a positive way. I was recently invited to present to a large group of teachers through the Reading League. So I'm very excited. I haven't even told oh, you about great. that, Kelly. I'm super yeah. excited about it. And they have such an impact. And I, I thought that when I was asked to do this, my first thought was, as they said, a lot of their presentations are seen by thousands of teachers. And I thought every teacher this year alone will see 20 kids. So that's 20 kids affected by every teacher. I started to do the math and then I thought about the long-term effect and it just gave me great joy to think about how this, um, could impact children. Even though I don't get to see it every day, these kinds of opportunities um, are, are very helpful to think about the impact, and I'm, I'm very grateful. Wow, that really is just, I imagine it's humbling to just imagine yes. the amount of teachers who may take that information and move it forward. And I take it so seriously because, you know, when I'm putting together the slides, every Every word I try to think very deeply about how this would be interpreted, how this really impacts what they're doing? Am I being clear? And then, you know, I just talk to teachers and say, hey, how does this look? And try to do a test audience too, because they're the best ones to tell me whether it makes sense to them or not. Um, and it's 
really bi-directional and that's the tricky part about presentations they're not really bi-directional you're just talking so i try to create some of that bi-directionality ahead of time so that i can get a sense of what that might be like for them hearing uh what i'm discussing and how how it matters to what they're doing every day yeah so with, with those kinds of ideas in mind, and I think, you know, you've talked a little bit about working with doctoral students and postdocs, and um, I think another big part of your career and your legacy certainly has been your mentorship and the extent to which you engage in preparing the next generation of researchers, um, myself included, thankfully. And so um, for people who are maybe considering getting a PhD or for current PhD students who are kind of trying to think about how they might juggle that connection between the clinical world and the research world, do you have advice for that population of people? Yes, um, I think it's just different, you know, across the different phases of your career, right? So in the beginning, when I think about the career, it's just really about proving to yourself that you can do the work. Other people can see it in you, you know, um, you, you know, most people, I would venture all people have champions they can turn to, mentors, people that say, hey, you're doing a good job and supporting them, but you almost have to believe their vision before you see it yourself. So it's really proving to yourself that you can get the work done, get it funded, write up the research paper, um, and that, you know, you're trying to balance in that moment, how do you be yourself, what you bring to the table, but how do you fit this kind of mold of what you think you should be doing? And I think this applies across not just being an academic, but even as a clinician, like how do you bring yourself to that role and, you know, looking for models. I spent a lot of time looking for models and I think ultimately that was a waste of my time because I think you have to decide what works for you and how you can best be yourself in the role and how you can bring yourself to the, to the role. I think a lot about this um, example in psycholinguistic work where they had children draw birds and children tend to draw a bird that doesn't exist. It has a lot of characteristics of all birds. It looks closely, it more, it's probably the closest aligned to a robin, what a robin would look like, but it's, there's, that bird just doesn't exist. And I think that's the case with trying to model yourself at each stage, you know, to someone that you admire, for instance, is that you're, you're modeling yourself to something that just doesn't exist because that, that view, that model is just an amalgamation of of all these different characteristics. So you have to find out what bird you are essentially. And I think that's what you're doing, um, you know, especially in the beginning of the career. And I think that you know, there's an old school view that you should establish yourself and you should do all the research and then you should try to disseminate to a broader audience. And I, I really think that's outdated. And I think that we have to find ways to reward and acknowledge dissemination to broader audiences uh, early on in the career. I think that reward has to come from your yearly evaluation. I think it has to come from your peers. I think it has to come from funding agencies that will acknowledge the broader impact of what you're doing. And I think it's also going to require some training. I know I didn't, I wasn't trained how to disseminate to a broader audience. And that's not the same skill set that it takes to write a research paper uh, to other scientists and write grants. And so I think that's, you know, it's, Unfortunately, it does add another level of training for students that are already having to learn so much. But I also think it goes back to bringing yourself to the task. So not doing it, okay, I have to translate to a broader audience, so I have to do a podcast because that's what Tiffany did. Like, I think you have to find out what you like to do, what, you know, what's good for you, and then how do you translate that to a broader audience and taking advantage of some of the um, connections you have, for instance, locally, um, uh, nationally, whatever connections, and your skill set, what you feel comfortable with. And everyone can work to translate and make an impact and be advocate, depending on their situation, what they bring to the table. For me, podcasting made a lot of sense because I like to talk and I really like to listen to what other people are doing and ask them questions about their research. So it was almost like, this is what I do every day. So it made a lot of sense. But if I didn't like those things, then I, it wouldn't be a good match. Um, and so I think everyone can find what they can best do to learn to, uh, you know, translate the research practice in their own way at their own stage. Wow. That's fascinating. And I, I absolutely love that bird example because I think it's so true. And I think it's also really helpful for those of us at a variety of stages. So I think, you know, you've got some people listening who maybe have thought about getting a PhD, but have thought, oh, I don't know if that's something I could do. And I've been there, you've been there. Mm -hmm. um, and, and now, you know, 
you're a full professor and, you know, obviously well-established. Um, and so I think it's nice to kind of see that trajectory and to think about how it might, it can and should be different for each individual person. And I love the idea of how to consider bringing yourself to the role. Um, and I, I just think that's a really great way to think about that. And so, um, again, your contributions to the field, this is coming from uh, one of your uh, question, uh, listener questions, um, your contributions to the field have really been multifaceted. And so I've, I've mentioned, you know, your research program, your teaching, your advocacy, your mentorship. Um, we've just talked a little bit about dissemination and how to best do that um, and, you know, really there's just so many things that we could really be thinking about the ways that in which you've contributed to the field, but in the and how you manage all of these things, like how do you decide? And I know you've already kind of said that you're impatient with moving some projects forward and seeing the results, but how do you decide what to prioritize? And, you know, when you have such limited time, just as a, a, an average human would, how do you decide what to prioritize and, and how to um, invest your time in certain areas? I think this is a, such a tough question, and I really thought a lot about it. Um, I'd like to say I go with my gut, but I think that's a bit of a cop-out, and it's just more complicated than that. And I think it really involves more balancing your own curiosity with where you see the field moving. So I think at any given time, you could make so many different choices, but I try to think about all the choices I want to make in my research career, and then I think about what's happening in the context and what might make the biggest impact at that time. So. Um, I think that one example, for instance, is I've been interested in screening for a very long time, but I do think that right now with the movement towards these, with these dyslexia laws, and it's really a great time right now to work on screening. So even though there's other things I could work on, that's something I want to put my time and effort into uh, because I think also the context and the environment supports it too. I think also, I think it's just acknowledging that you can't really multitask. So that idea of multitasking is not valid. It's really just shifting attention and how quickly you can do that and also how focused you can be on the one task. And so I try to just every day create priorities. And instead of thinking about, this has been a long transition in my process of uh, thinking about this, but instead of thinking about checking things off the list, I try to just think about time in. So I have my list of priorities and then I just think I'm gonna do my very best job to be as focused as I can on what I'm doing at the moment and I'm gonna work this number of hours. And then once I'm done with the number of hours, I'm not gonna chastise myself for not getting things done as I wanted, but I'm gonna reward myself to say, you worked hard, you did the best you could. And then I put the glass down. So I know I've talked to Kelly about this before, of like, I love this analogy and I love all analogies and metaphors, uh, but <laughs> I think that, and I like to speak in them. Uh, but if you you know have a glass, I think about this a lot. If you have a glass and you pick it up and you hold it for 30 minutes, it becomes very, 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 very heavy and your arm hurts. But if you put it down for even just 10 seconds, pick it back up again, it's very light. And I think that's a lot of how our cognitive load is. If we just push through and work, 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 we never set the glass down and we never have that refresher time. And so I just try to um, put the time in, take the time off when I need it, listen to my gut. If I'm feeling burnout, which definitely happens, then I have to stop for a bit and take some time. And But at the same time, there's some, some moments where I'm feeling so energetic and I just want to work more, and I do that too. So I try to have a little bit of flexibility there, but I'm also not always on time with everything. I mean, it's not uncommon for me to be a week or two late on things, um, and I, I'm, I think I'm getting better at communicating that and thinking about how long it takes to do things. That's also a really hard task for me. And I think for a lot of people is how long is it going to take to write 10 page paper? I don't know. Uh, it's hard. So um, I think it's trying to figure that out and multitask. And again, it goes back to asking for help too, um, because I think that if you, if you are doing things other people could do, that's not really the best use of your time and giving other people opportunities is helpful. And then just setting realistic goals and being kind to yourself. I'm getting better over time with that, but it is a learned skill. It's not something automatic um, and patience, right? It's a virtue. So yes, yes, absolutely. And I've used the, the cup metaphor myself, obviously learned from you. Um, and it is so important that we give ourselves some of that grace and, uh, and really some space to, to have conversations about what, 
what is my priority, what does work for me. But what I love the most about what you said is really just this idea of being kind to yourself and rewarding yourself for the work that you have put in. And I'm a big to-do list checker offer. <laughs> so that, it is hard to let go of that when that's something that you're used to. And it is motivating for me to cross things off of the list. But it is also helpful to know that the work that I've done in the course of a day is contributing towards the greater good and is also moving something on the list forward, even if it's not something that you can fully check off. So I think that um, that kindness to ourselves is really is completely underrated and very necessary. I also think that, um, you know, one of the worst things we do to ourselves, and it's just pure human nature, is comparison. I mean, comparing ourselves to other people is the worst. And I love this quote. Comparison is the thief of joy because it absolutely is. I mean, how many times have you done something great? And then I don't know why it's human nature to be like, oh, but I guess it wasn't as good as this person. Or you, you know, you just start automatically comparing. I don't know what that is, but it happens. And I just think it goes back to the model we're looking for. And we're trying to think of anchors to know if we're doing well. We're constantly like, are we doing well enough? Are we doing well enough? Are we doing enough? So we look to other people as a comparison to try to validate that. And it's just really the worst thing you can do because no one is you. And I do love this um, cartoon that shows two flowers and it says something like, oh, I love your blooms. I wish I bloomed. And it was like, well, we're different flowers, silly. Like basically yeah. you're going to bloom at a different time. Everyone's doing their yes. own path. So I think we have to also, I have to do this a lot too. So you just have to practice that cognitive, um, you know, just constant cognitive practice and mindfulness of like, don't compare, do the best you can. When someone else succeeds, celebrate their you know successes. Don't compare and automatically feel somehow bad about their successes. That's the opposite. Get joy from their successes and then surround yourself with people who also have joy in your successes. Because if you're around people that are constantly comparing, um, that's not great either because then they're not celebrating you. So I think it's, you know, choosing the right uh, flock to hang with and also really working on yourself to just not compare yourself. I think that's really detrimental. Yeah, absolutely. And and our our shared friend, Julie Walter, she and I, um, one of the trainings we've been through has um, talked about surrounding yourself with nutritious people. Oh, I love and, that. you know, I, I learned about that in the ASHA Leadership Development Program, which is where I met Julie and then subsequently met you. Um, and that that sticks with me all the time. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you can just say, well, I'm not going to be around that person because they're not nutritious. But it is something that you can just tell yourself, I feel better and I feel different when I when I make sure that I do spend time with nutritious people. And it's also been a mission of mine to make sure that I'm that I offer that space for people too, that I try to be a nutritious person. But as any of your listeners can see, this is um, this is where I've gotten it from is from you because you, you modeled this. And I remember as a doctoral student, you know, 10, 10 years ago now, um, you talking about, you know, there's, there's plenty of room at the table for everybody, you know, and I was very interested in speech sound disorders kind of out of the gate and worried about like, well, what if somebody like has my idea before I do? And, and you're, your response is always kind of like, they might, and that's okay, but it doesn't mean it's going to be the same way you'd answer it. And the, you know, there's different, there's room for everybody yes. in this, in this sandbox of research. Yeah, that's right. Um, and so um, the last question before we move on to wrapping up is um, just kind of reflecting on what a momentous year this has been for you professionally. So you mentioned briefly receiving ASHA Fellow this year. And so um, one of the things I'm going to ask you to link in the listener um, resources is what it actually means to be ASHA Fellow. So a link to the requirements of what it took to receive the nomination and to put the application packet together and to actually receive that award because it, it is a huge milestone professionally. And so that paired with, you know, this one year anniversary now of the podcast, are there any specific moments from those particular milestones or the culmination of what they mean for you that you'd like to reflect on? This is a tricky question for me because I do I do definitely think it's those little moments uh, every day that you have and just grabbing those little moments that really make up um, the big moments. And it was such an honor to get the ASHA Fellow. I, I definitely never started the career thinking, I'm going to get an ASHA Fellow. I just started the career thinking I just want to do the best work I can to help kids and, uh, you know, keep a job. That's really important as well. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I can keep doing what I'm doing. And I definitely have this view of, um, you know, uh, keeping your eye on the ball. So 
when I was, I used to play softball and now my kids play baseball. And one of the things that I always think about is that when you're teaching a child to hit the ball, they always look at the outfield. Like I want to hit a home run and they look at the outfield. But actually that's the big mistake. You have to look at the ball. And if you look at the ball and keep your eye on the ball, you will hit the home run. And so to me, the ball is the children and these little small moments that you have along the way. Um, so I think those that accumulation you know, resulted in this ASHA fellow, which is a huge honor to me. Um, but it's been through keeping my eye on the ball, I think that it's happened and I'm, I'm just, I'm very grateful. But some of the moments I will, I won't, I will answer the question. So some of the moments um, that I think about is when I've gotten notice of a research grant that has been really big moments and they don't happen very often, so difficult to get research grants. And, um, especially ones that focus in clinical practice. They're really tricky. And, uh, you know, these have been huge because every time I get a research grant, I just automatically think, cool, I get to actually do the work and I can fund students and I get to work with interesting people to solve these cool problems. So that those are big moments for me. Other big moments that stand out are graduations. I'm a sucker for the graduations and just seeing <laughs> my students earn their PhD and become Dr. So-and-so, it's just, it fills me with absolute joy. Um, but again, it's those little moments of just, you know, when I talk to a parent and provide them information that gives them relief or more information for their child, or when I see a light bulb moment in my student's eyes when I'm discussing a concept or they have a big idea and it's like, yeah, that's awesome. Um, those are really cool and important to me. And another big moment truly has been the success of this podcast. It has been the greatest surprise of my career. And I, I just love it so much. And I've been so um so grateful to the guests i've had uh they've been you know donate their time and effort and they talk with me and they're honest and and i get to learn something right along with the listeners and just the feedback i've gotten from the listeners has been so amazing and uh just so humbling and it's very cool and the fact that it's worldwide um has been just amazing and uh, so that's been a, a great moment too and a real honor it has been incredible to watch the growth of the podcast in just one short year. So it's I'm very excited to see uh, where it's going to go next. Um, and I'm sure that there are many more of these wonderful moments uh, on their way because you've got a, a new group of PhD students and postdocs. And um, and for many more years to come, I know that you'll continue to contribute to our field in, in big ways. Um, so for the sake of time, I'm going to wrap up by asking you the two questions that you always end your episodes by asking your your um, guests. And so the first one is if you could tell us a little bit about what you're excited about right now that you're currently working on. So I know you've got a lot of irons on the fire, but what's what's the most exciting thing for you right now? This is a tough one too, because uh, like you said, I do have a lot of things moving forward, but uh, one of the things I'm most excited about is this large National Institutes of Health grant that is funded uh, with, to myself, um, collaborator Julie Walter, who you mentioned at the University of Montana, and also collaborator Jesse Ricketts, who's in London at Royal Holloway. And the cool part about this grant is that we get to answer some very interesting research questions. Many of these questions have plagued me for a long time, and I just have not had it wasn't the right time. I haven't had the energy and the time and priority to make it a priority. And now it's come about. And Kelly, it's cool, right? Because you were, I, w I say this research grant, which involves orthographic processing. So learning of letters and letter patterns. And this has been one that I've always tried to kept keep kindling. It's like a fire in the background. I'm trying to kindle along the way as I'm doing other things. And you as a doctoral student saw some of that kindling <laughs> that occurred yes. and were a big part of it uh, before it was funded. Cause there was a lot of, um, a lot of barriers that had to be addressed before the grant could even go in. One of them being, how do we even determine based on a child database of what children are looking at in books? How do we determine the probability of, of letters co-occurring? And that took a lot of work to even get a database in process. So it took nearly 15 years really to get this work together. And Julie and I were doctoral students when we first talked about this grant and we weren't, we didn't get the grant until we were full professors. So it just, it, again, that patience and time. But in this grant, uh, it's very, it's particularly special to me because we're working with a full school district. So we have a school district here we're working with and to work at the district level 
with all of the teachers and the administration and that whole system has been amazing. And uh, Julie's doing the same and at the University of Montana with a full school system. So we feel very integrated and we have such a committed team. And in this grant, we are going in training teachers, kindergarten teachers in particular, to screen for dyslexia and language impairment. And we're using some of the measures we've created that are group screeners. So we test kids um, in the full classroom. So it takes about 20 minutes to test all of the children. And we wanted it to be efficient because, you know, there's so much to do. There's so much testing and we want to be as efficient as possible. So we're testing all of these children. We just finished testing 3,000 kindergartners. Uh, for language comprehension abilities to determine risk for uh, developmental language disorder. And now we're doing the follow-up testing to determine how sensitive and specific the screener was. And then we're also getting ready to do some more screening for dyslexia in the spring. Uh, so coming up here in a couple of months with that, those districts. And then we're um, choosing kids that have developmental language disorder to ask them to be in the experimental part of the study where we uh, created a computer-based word learning task and then we are asking them to learn novel words that we present either only through auditory so there's nothing written or we present with the written form and we're looking at what's called orthographic facilitation or the ability to recall the spoken form of the word more readily when it's been paired with the written form during learning. So asking, what is this called? And there's nothing written. And if you see it during the learning process, if you see the written form or see how it's written out, then you're more likely to remember it. And our hypothesis is that children with developmental language disorder who go on to have dyslexia are going to show these initial deficits in orthographic learning or remembering letters and letter sound sequences um, compared to those with the developmental language disorder who don't go on to dyslexia. And that's also been something that I've been fascinated with for a very long time, and that is that only about 50% of children with developmental language disorder in kindergarten go on to have word reading problems, but initially they all have these phonological deficits. So for this group of children with developmental language disorder, phonological impairments is not a good predictor of dyslexia because they all have these phonological impairments. And I have a new article coming out. I just did the page proofs last week in Journal of Speech-Language Hearing Research, JSLHR, that talks about this. Um, it's determining risk for dyslexia in children with DLD. And we confirm that the phonological uh, skills are not the best predictor for this population of children. So our hypothesis is it's more about letter, sound, or, or some letter name knowledge, letter sound knowledge, and orthographic learning. So it's been an exciting project. We're only in year two, so we'll see how it goes. And I'm excited to share those results and to continue to really work towards this implementation science, working with full school districts to think about their barriers and facilitators as we move forward and how it can impact uh, practice right now. That's so exciting, and I think it's also really inspiring for someone at my stage in my career, you know, a, a pre-tenure faculty member, um, to, to just be thinking about how long it takes to, to really kind of do um, some of these projects and some of this work. And I think the important part is that you never gave up on the idea of, of this orthographic processing study and really looking at this from uh, the level of a school district is just so fascinating. So I'm really glad that you get to do this work and importantly that you're um, that you're really able to model this um, perseverance for those of us who are you know just really kind of watching your career and and um and admiring you from afar or close up as the case. Um, and so then the um, the second question I'll ask before we end for today is what's your favorite children's book? So I said this in episode one, um, and I I tried to think if it was a different answer, but it's the same one. I loved Nancy Drew books. Yes. I just loved them. I devoured all of them, um, and I used to. I used to just want to solve a mystery. I know now as an adult that I was very lucky to have an uneventful childhood. It was a great childhood. Nothing really happened. But at the time, I thought it was really boring. And so I always <laughs> wished for a mystery. And I always wanted to solve a mystery. And I think that's the cool part about being a scientist, actually. I do feel like I am an investigator. I'm a Nancy oh. Drew for literacy and reading and those things because I do think that I still haven't lost that um, desire to solve a mystery and to think about all the clues and how they come together. And so <laughs> um, Nancy Drew, it's always going to be Nancy Drew for me. 
I love that, and I love the connection that you just made to, like, it really is solving a puzzle or solving a mystery, all the work that you've been doing. And so um, I look forward to hearing all the answers as you continue to publish all your work. And and um, I've been really thankful um, for you to give me this opportunity to guest host today. And I've loved listening to all the episodes of See, Hear, Speak podcast. I know your listeners have, too. And so thank you for the work that you've been doing. I know one of your taglines has been um, helping children or changing the world one child at a time. And I hope that you've been able to reflect in the past year on how many children you've changed directly and indirectly. Um, your work is is just so inspiring and so helpful. And thank you for creating this podcast as a platform to highlight that. Well, thank you so much. And I just want to take the time at this one year anniversary to thank my listeners. Uh, my listeners inspire me. They really do. They're the ones with boots on the ground. And they really are changing one child uh, at a time, changing the world one child at a time. So thank you, Kelly, for doing this. Thank you, Tiffany. And thank you, listeners, for having me. Check out www.seehearspeakpodcast.com for helpful resources associated with this podcast, including, for example, the podcast transcript, research articles, and speaker bios. You can also sign up for email alerts on the website or subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or any other listening platform so you can be the first to hear about new episodes. Thank you for listening and good luck to you making the world a better place by helping one child at a time.